podcast informs listeners that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed solely belong to the host and not necessarily to their employer or any other group of individuals. It is not a research report. It is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. It is for informational purposes only and should not be construed otherwise. Nikki's podcast. You're listening to today's October 17, 2019 Nikki's podcast. So, um, actually, I'd like to share about this really old book. Um, the name is Dragons and Bulls. Profitable Investment Strategies for Trading Stocks and Commodities. It's a consolidation of deep insight gained by Stanley Kroll, a master in finance for 34 years on Wall Street. Here, he shares that, uh, I would read verbatim, Dragons and Bulls offers focus against a contemporary and critical business landscape. I have prepared a translation for investors in China where information on investing and speculating are limited. Stanley Kroll started his career in 1960 on New York's Wall Street. During his 34 years of Wall Street trading, he accumulated a phenomenal amount of experience and wealth. He left the highly competitive Wall Street arena a millionaire and started traveling around the world. During his five-year sabbatical, Mr. Kroll enhanced his studies on economics, finance, and investment strategies. He has written five books, Dragons and Bulls, Profitable Investment Strategies for Trading Stocks and Commodities, is his sixth work. In 1993, Mr. Kroll relocated to Hong Kong, where he now resides. He's a managing director of his own financial consulting firm. He concentrates on managed futures trading, finance and commodity hedging, risk control, and investment strategies. Commodity futures and equity trading has just started in China, and compared with the 200-year history of Wall Street, we have a long way to go, especially as most Chinese lack experience in investing, speculating, and risk management. In this book, Mr. Kroll shares his decades of investment experience and distinguishes himself with his own trading methods and strategies. This is indeed a unique and valuable book for all investors and speculators, whether amateurs or professionals. In his preface, let me read. For many years, I've wanted to write a book dealing with the strategy of trading both stocks and commodities. But for a variety of reasons, I never got around to doing it. However, upon relocating to Hong Kong in 1993, I felt that the time was right and I set to work on it in earnest. It's unfortunate that so much of my current thinking attempts to separate the strategy of trading stocks from that of futures. And most people think that the two markets are worlds apart. In actuality, this is not the case. Many experienced traders have come to the realization that speculative speculative trading in both stocks and commodities 
have a great deal in common, notwithstanding many of the logistics being different. But the basic tenets of sound trading strategy, of risk control, and of the need for total discipline are common to both. The principal difference between the two markets is one of leverage or gearing. Futures traders commonly trade on as little as 5% of the market value, while stock traders must generally put down 50%. It is the leverage that principally differentiates the two. If futures traders had to put down 50% of the contract value and stock traders just 5%, the situation would be completely reversed. Commodity trading would be considered conservative and sedate, while stock trading would be deemed risky and speculative. This book acknowledges the vast difference in the gearing between the two markets, strategies, tactics, and risk control elements of both markets. Those areas where they differ and those where they are similar are discussed. It will become evident that the, the, similar that the similarities are far more significant than the differences and that being skilled in one market can definitely be a big asset when trading in the other. It should be noted that generally the discussion is principally about trend following, that is trading in the direction of the predominant trend. For example, buying on weakness into support is a preferred way to trade, but only within the context of a major uptrending market. If the trend is down, even if buying into support, there is still likely to be losses. The same applies for selling short against an uptrending market. Advice on the size of the position to trade is a little difficult. It's a bit like asking, how big is big? If trading against the trend and sitting with losses, even one contract seems excessive. On the other hand, if trading with the predominant trend, with the market moving generally in your favor, even a larger position can feel comfortable. However, to be more specific in trading stocks, it is recommended that you do not use anything more than say 35% of your capital to margin positions, and for futures, nothing more than 25%. Furthermore, it's a good idea to diversify into about 10 markets so that a miscalculation or a mishap in one market can be cushioned by the performance of the overall portfolio. Dividing the amount you have available for margin by 10, more for a big account, different markets, gives an indication of how big a position to take. And finally, no discussion of strategy can be complete without some mention of Murphy's Law. Now this is not really a law, but an approach to events that simply stated means whatever can go wrong will. So whenever you're careless about forgetting to enter your protective stops or putting in too big a position in terms of a well-balanced account, even though it looks so good on the chart, you are likely to become reacquainted with Murphy's Law. Remember the old saying, whether the pot hits the kettle or the kettle hits the pot, it's likely to turn out bad for the kettle. Well, the same reasoning applies to speculation. Carelessness and ineptitude are rarely rewarded by profits and favorably moving markets. Here is a final word before you embark on this book. Readers are invited to write to me, care of the publisher, about any aspect of this book that they'd like to discuss further. I will respond to the best of my time and availability. Chapter 1, Introduction 
the man they called JL. Chapter 2, The Importance of an Investment Strategy. Chapter 3, Winners and Losers. Chapter 4, Technical versus Fundamental Analysis. Chapter 5, The Art of War by Sun Tzu and the Art of Trading Success. Chapter 6, That's the Way You Want to Bet. Chapter 7, Those That Know Don't Tell, Those That Tell Don't Know. Chapter 8, Why There Is No Such Thing as a Bad Market. Chapter 9, Perception versus Reality. Chapter 10, Risk Control and Discipline, Keys to Success. Chapter 11, Long-Term versus Short-Term Trading. Chapter 12, Buy the Strength, Sell the Weakness. Chapter 13, Larry Height, the Billion Dollar Fund Manager. Chapter 14, Creating and Using a Technical Trading System. Chapter 15, Trading System, Crow Suggested Method. Chapter 16, Intricacies of Order Entry Procedures. Chapter 17, Crow's Market Strategy for Consistent Profits. Chapter 18, Investment Opportunities in China and Hong Kong for the 1990s and Epilogue to Chapter 18. It's a 100-pager. I think that I'd love to read all of it for you. And so today, let me give you just a storytelling on Chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 1, The Man They Called J.L. As the plump aluminum bird curved westward toward Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the luminescent color delineation between the Gulf Stream and the Atlantic Ocean was strong and clear. I slumped back in my seat while the jet began its final approach, reflecting on the main reason for my Florida fishing trip this Christmas holiday. I felt a compelling fellowship for a man they called J.L., and I was here because he used to come here. I could picture him in his heyday back in the 1920s, Tall, trim, and intense, seated by the window of the speeding New York to Florida Passenger Express. Anticipating days of fishing and fellowship, relaxation and contemplation, and most important, a respite, albeit brief, from his heroic battles in Wall Street and Chicago arenas. This was Jesse Lauriston Livermore. Throughout the centuries, scores of brilliant or lucky market operators have had the heady and envious sensation of closing a position with a million-plus-dollar profit. I, too, on a few occasions have had the good fortune to be included in this exclusive group. But Livermore was in a class of his own. For the sheer scope and magnitude of his gutsy operations, for the disciplined and calculating way in which he bought and sold, for the lonely and detached hand that he invariably played, he has never been surpassed by any other loan operator. Jesse Livermore was born in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, USA on July 26, 1877, the only child of a poor farming couple. At the age of 14, he left home for a job earning $3,000, sorry, earning $3 per week as a board market at a Boston brokerage office. From this modest start and through several years of apprenticeship, trading just small stock positions at various bucket shops along the East Coast, this quiet and dedicated young man became one of the most feared and admired market operators of the early part of this century. Other Wall Street operators nicknamed him the Boy Plunger. Livermore's universe was price fluctuations, 
both stock and commodity, and his obsession, the accurate analysis and projection of these prices. Edward J. Dice, one of the great financial commentators of this era, observed that should Livermore be shown of every dollar, given a small brokerage credit, and locked in a room with tickets, tickers, and phones, he would re-emerge with a new fortune. From my earliest Wall Street days, starting in 1959, Livermore was my hero. And as I began developing my own expertise in price analysis and trading, he became my coach and mentor in absentia. Like many investors, I've been influenced by his tactics, his strategies, and his market philosophy. There is only one side of the market. It's not the bull side or the bear side, he wrote in his book, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. There is only one side, the right side. That basic philosophy is indelibly etched in my mind, and I revert it every time I read some lofty or tedious market analysis, excessively focused on theoretical hype rather than practical market analysis and strategy. Like most traders, I frequently face the decision of which positions to hold and which to close out. Here, Livermore provides excellent clear-cut counsel through a commentary describing his own mistakes. I did precisely the wrong thing. The cotton showed me a loss. I kept it. The wheat showed me a profit, and I sold it out. Of all the speculative blunders, there are few greater than trying to average a losing game. Always close what shows you a loss. Keep what shows you a profit. However, Livermore's most significant legacy to investors concerns an overall strategy regarding investment objectives. It is particularly relevant during these times when traders are becoming increasingly dependent on powerful personal computers and advanced software. Even relatively inexperienced traders are swinging in and out of sizable positions on the basis of a tick-by-tick or online short-term chart presentations. Pay heed to this piece of Livermore wisdom. After spending many years on Wall Street, after making and losing millions of dollars, I want to tell you this. It was never my thinking that made the big money for me. It was my sitting. Got that? My sitting tight. It is no trick at all to be right on the market. You will always find lots of early bulls in bull markets and a lot of early bears in bear markets. I have known many men who were right at exactly the right time and began buying or selling when prices were at the very level which should, which should have made the greatest profit. And their, in, and their experience invariably matched mine. That is, they made no real money out of it. Men who can be both right and sit tight are uncommon. I find this one of the hardest things to learn. It's only after a market operator has firmly grasped this that he can make big money. It's literally true that millions come easier to a trader after he knows how to trade than hundreds did 
in the days of his ignorance. Here's what Livermore said about losing money. Losing money is the least of my troubles. A loss never bothers me after I take it. But being wrong, not taking the loss, that is what does damage to the pocketbooks and to the soul. Regrettably, my Florida fishing trip was much too short and about a week later, I was back to the freezing weather in New York. While waiting for the big fish to bite, I thought a lot about Livermore and his Florida fishing trips, about his trading strategy, his considerable market wisdom. And while his catch was undoubtedly more bountiful than my own modest bunch of kingfish, I enjoyed one advantage he could, he could not possibly have had. I was able to study and enjoy his books. I composed above words some very multiple years ago, but they're as timely today as the day they were written. They would have been relevant 50 years, 100 years ago, and they will be 50 and 100 years in the future. In 1849, Alphonse Carr said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. That certainly applies to Livermore's investment strategies and tactics. Jesse Livermore was probably the most dynamic and successful lone wolf speculator and investment strategist of this century and possibly of all time. Although he died in 1941, his influence on succeeding generations of stock and commodity traders has been enormous. I count myself as one of his disciples, having read and reread his writings countless times. And upon arriving in Asia, I was astounded to find how many stock and commodity speculators here feel the same about this investment legend. About 10 years ago, I had in my mind to write a book about Livermore using first-hand recollections from people who had known him and worked with him in Wall Street in the 1920s and 1930s. I advertised in financial newspapers and magazines seeking people with personal experiences of Livermore and his operations. Unfortunately, I was too late. I couldn't find anyone with such personal first-hand knowledge. This was a big disappointment, but my own Wall Street career was active and busy. I soon drifted away from this project into more constructive pursuits. However, I never fully discontinued this Livermore project. And over the intervening years, I continued to study his writings and develop my own investment strategies with the assistance of Livermore's considerable wisdom and experience. Gradually, an idea developed. If I couldn't write a new and relevant book about Livermore, why not write one with him? Write a book with a person who retired permanently over 50 years ago? A colleague suggested the strain of over 30 years of trench warfare may have been too much for me, unless, of course, I had some new theories on the subject of mortality. Well, I had no such creative theories on mortality. What I had, however, was the realization that Livermore's tactics and strategies, although some of the best ever, developed and enunciated for financial markets, may have become, over the years, a bit dowdy and tattered round the edges. Perhaps they could stand to be updated, modernized, reinterpreted for a whole new generation of stock, commodity, and options investors throughout the world. People have grown up with fast PCs, software, online tech data, which could be transmitted by satellite to the fastest corners of the globe with a lightning fast speed. 
developments and facilities Livermore couldn't even have dreamed about. Traders in the 1990s approaching the 21st century analyze markets, enter orders in literally dozens of languages. Livermore used only English and quite likely never even heard a word spoken in any other language. To maximize usefulness, Livermore's teachings would have been interpreted and modernized for scores of dynamic and active traders who had never even heard a word in Livermore's 19th century New England dialect and combine it with the most relevant strategies. As a matter of fact, as I am sitting at my trading desk now in Hong Kong, 12,000 miles from Wall Street, I continue to apply my chosen profession, analyzing and trading markets alongside a myriad of financial operators who apply a similar trade in dozens of languages and dialects other than English. Thanks to modern satellite communications, I can fill market orders in the same split-second interval that it took to fill similar orders from my desk in New York. But there is one inconvenience which unfortunately cannot be overcome with modern technology. Being located on the other side of the globe, Hong Kong, is hours ahead of New York. So in order to trade New York and Chicago markets, a late start around 8 p.m., work through the small hours of the morning in order of the day. However, there are of course many compensations for an American living in Asia. That would easily overcome the modest inconvenience of working the night shift. That's chapter one. I hope you like the story and um, we'll continue these chapters, Dragons and Bulls. Uh, but for today, that's first 20 minutes. And this is a, it's a good book. It's 18 chapters and you'll hear more about it tomorrow. Thank you.